Gracious Father, as we open your holy word, I pray that you would lead and guide us. We need your guidance by your spirit if we're going to understand and have the truth um, lived out in our lives. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit to be present. We also ask, Father, that you would bind Satan from interfering with the reception of this message. I pray, Father, that, um, that we would have your divine help here this morning. And I pray that you would lead and guide us as we open your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Who is, what is the church? Who is the bride of Christ? You know, it's estimated that there are 4,200 different what? Religions in the world. When you switch over to denominations, you get quite a few more. Just in the Christian religion, there are 45,000 denominations. According to a um, recent research put out by Gordon-Conwell University in 2014, by 2025, they estimate that there will be 55,000 different denominations. Even within a single denomination, like Seventh -day, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you've got a plethora of beliefs and practices that fit within the umbrella of what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist. You know, we're not all united in, uh, in our thoughts or in our practices. Let me give you an example. The Adventist church is very focused on health. How many would agree? Adventist church, very focused on health. A huge supporter and promoter of the vegetarian diet, of vegetarianism. Yet despite our emphasis on vegetarianism as a church, studies have shown that Adventists are not all agreed on this one issue. Only 30% of the Adventist church around the world practices strict vegetarianism, 30%. And that takes into account places such as Africa and other places where being a vegetarian is not really an, a practical option. Now, we, we aren't even talking about the split over vegans and vegetarians or raw vegans versus vegans or fruitarians versus, yeah. You know, in the Bible, it talks about three heavens. Anyways, vegetarianism in the very beginning wasn't an issue, was it? It was practiced by 100% of those who were in the church in the Garden of Eden. It seems today that we have more disagreement in churches than ever. And people are splitting over minor issues. I believe this, I believe that, and they're splitting off 45,000 different ways of seeing things. So how do you deal with, or how do you respond to 45,000 different paths that all claim to lead to heaven? How, how do you... How do you Deal with that. You know, how do you respond to it? Well, 
I'd like to suggest that there are three ways that Christians tend to respond to this whole uh, idea of multiple denominations. What is the true church? The first way of responding is to say, well, the church is invisible. You can't really see it. I mean, the church isn't a denomination. It isn't really a building. The church is the people. And you can find God's people in every church. How many of you would say, I like option number one? Would you say, I like option number one? Yeah? Yeah? You're bashful this morning. The church isn't the denomination. The church isn't the building. The church is the people. Well, there's a second way of viewing it. And that second way is, no, 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 no. Yes, it's important to be a good Christian, but that's not enough. You need to be part of God's true church, and God's true church is visible. We can see it. I mean, it's a denomination. Out of the 4,200 religions and out of the 45,000 different denominations, there is one true church. One church. Option number one says... You can be a Baptist, a Pentecostal, a Roman Catholic, a Seventh-day Adventist, or even an independent church and still be part of God's true church. Option number two says, no way, no how, you pick the wrong church, you're not getting into the pearly gates. How many would say, yeah, I think option number two is correct? Yeah, good, good, okay. I'm with you, uh, Jonah. You raised your hand for both because that's option number three. Option number three is that the church is both. The church is both visible and invisible. That there is an invisible body of believers that you can find who are following God in every uh, religion and every denomination. There are people who God is leading in all of those uh, different denominations and all of those religions, and they are leading, being led by God, step by step, closer and closer to truth. That's God's church, but it's invisible. You can't see them. You don't know who they are. And then you have the visible church, and that is the one true church which has the truth at the end of time. So that's the third option. Let me recap with you. Number, option number one, the church is invisible. Option number two, the church is visible. Option number three, the church is both. Which one is right? Well, I'd like to show you from Scripture that number three, invisible and visible church is correct. And it really matters... Why does this matter? Because what you believe about either one of these, option one, two, or three, is really going to dictate to how you respond to God and your walk with God in conjunction with the church. If you believe, option number one, that the church is invisible, who cares about the denomination? I can go to any church and be a follower of God. Invisible church. Doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter, according to option number one. Uh, you're a Roman Catholic? Praise the Lord. You're a Seventh-day Adventist? Hallelujah. You're a Pentecostal? Amen. Uh, option number two says, no, 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 no. 
As long as you get the right church, you're A-OK. Does it really matter what's going on inside? You got the right church, you're good. Your membership's in the Roman Catholic Church, you're good. You're not going to purgatory. Roman, your, your membership's in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, good. You're in the right church. Your Adventists don't have purgatory. So, but right church. Option number three, you've got to have the right church, but you also have to have the right heart. Because the right church without the right heart doesn't amount to a whole lot. So I'd like to start right in the beginning with you, take you back to Adam and Eve. Because this really, as I'm looking at the Bible, this really is where the first church began. It wasn't a church established by man. It was a church established by God. And by church, I mean a religious system, an organization that God himself established for his worship. You go back to the very beginning in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, and you find God... God doesn't just baptize the members of his church. He creates the members of his church. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the earth, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, created he him male and female, he created them. In the beginning, the church consisted of people, just two, one man and one woman. They were committed to following, worshiping, and serving their creator. They were the church of God, pure. That's it. They had no written creed, no tables of stone. Instead, their, their only creed was the word of God, as it came direct from his mouth. Their purpose was to reflect his image. Their work was to tend and keep his garden. Their only danger was in disregarding the commandments of God. This was the first church. God not only is the one who created the members of the church, but the Bible tells us that God is the one who set the day of their worship. It wasn't Friday like the Muslims uh, worship. It wasn't Sunday like the Protestants worship on. It was the seventh day of the week, which God set aside and called holy. In fact, the Bible even says that it was sanctified in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. Verse 3, then God blessed the seventh day, something he didn't do with any other day, and he sanctified it. What's the word sanctify mean? To set apart for holy use. Now, some say, well, God just, just you know, created a day to rest on, showing us that we need to pick a day to rest each week. But the problem with that is that word sanctified. Now, the word sanctified is, is uh, very specific when it's used. 
It's used of the tabernacle, the, the tent where the people of God were to meet with God. Uh, was there just any tent that they could meet with God? Any tent? Could they just pick a tent? Could they pick a tent? No? Perhaps somebody raises their hand and says, Hey, come over to my tent for worship this Sabbath. Could they do that? No. Why? Because the tent was sanctified. That's right. And then God had priests. And the priests were set apart to be ministers for God. Could anybody just get up and be a priest? No. In fact, Miriam tried to fill that role. And you know what happened to her when she tried to fill a role or replace what God had sanctified? What did the Bible say? What happened to her? She got covered in leprosy and was um, required to stay out of the camp for seven days. Only those priests who were sanctified by the Lord could minister as God's ministers. So if a sanctified tent means we can't pick any other tent to worship in, if a sanctified priest means we can't just pick whatever priest to administer uh, or, or preach or, or, or be the priest, then what does a sanctified day mean? means that we can't just pick any what? Any day. God is the one who picked the day for Adam and Eve and told them, this is the day that is sanctified. This is the day that is blessed. And the same God who blessed and sanctified the Sabbath then still blesses and sanctifies the Sabbath today. Now, it may seem to us that this is conclusive evidence that the church in the beginning was just option number one. I mean, just one man, one woman, an invisible church. Not the structure, not the organization. The church is just the people. And yes, that's true, but I want you to catch a couple of other points before you close this chapter. I want you to take notice of what the angel was guarding when Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 24, it says... So he drove out the man and he placed the cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to what? Notice that the angel is not guarding the way to the Garden of Eden necessarily. His main purpose is to guard the way for, so that they will not come to what? The Tree of Life. Now why is this angel guarding the way for the Tree of Life? Well, the Bible says so that they won't eat of it and live forever. But I wonder if Adam and Eve used to meet with God to worship him right here at the tree of life in the cool of the day every day. I wonder if this was the meeting spot where God met with, with his people for them to come and worship before him in the evening. After all, when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 2, you find that the pagans would worship under the trees. When you drive out the nations that live there, you must destroy all the places where they worship their gods, high on the mountains, up on the hills, and under every what? Green tree. And we know that Satan counterfeits everything that God does. So I wonder if God called people to worship him on the tops of mountains. And by, by the way, the New Jerusalem is called over and over in Scripture, Mount Zion, or the mountain of God. 
If God called Adam and Eve to worship at the tree of life, perhaps Satan is calling his people to worship him at a different tree or under a different tree. You know, we also find that God comes to Adam and Eve to meet with them at a specific time. In Genesis 3, 3.8, it says that God came uh, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, almost as if this was a regular time he always came to meet with them. In Genesis chapter 3.8, it says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So here's what we do know. The gate nearest to the tree of life is the gate where the cherubim was stationed to guard the way to the tree of life. Sister White comments that this is where Adam and his sons came to worship God. If you go to Patriarchs and Prophets, page 62, it says that the Garden of Eden remained upon the earth long after man had become an outcast from its pleasant paths. The fallen race was long permitted to gaze upon the home of innocence, their entrance barred only by the watching angels. At the cherubim-guarded gate of paradise, the divine glory was revealed. Hither came Adam and who? His sons to worship God. Why did they come to that gate? Perhaps because that was the gate that was nearest to the place where they used to worship the place set aside by God, the tree of life. And they came uh, there to offer sacrifices before the Lord. Adam and his sons came. What does this reveal? God not only had a church made of people, there was also some visible way that God's people were distinguished from the earliest of times. They were distinguished as the ones who gathered to worship God closest to the tree of life, an invisible and also a visible church. Now, that might not be as clear an example of an invisible and visible church, but it starts to become more clear as we move down the line. The next place we come to is Cain and Abel, and it becomes a, a, a little more clear what God's true church is like with the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis 4, 1 through 2, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. As you read this verse, can you tell uh, which one of the bro brothers loves God more? Not at all, can you? Can you tell which one represents the true church of God? They look like the same group, right? I mean, they have different jobs. One takes care of sheep, the other is a farmer, but there's nothing wrong with that. Patriarchs and Prophets 72 says, So far as birth and religious instruction were concerned, these brothers were equal. Both were sinners, and both acknowledged the claims of God to reverence and worship. To outward appearance, their religion was the same up to a certain point, but beyond this, the difference between the two was great. 
On the outside, visibly, it looked as if they were both part of the church of God, right? When you go a few verses later, you begin to see the distinction. Verses 3 through 5, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel in his offering, but he did not respect Cain in his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. I want you to notice something. Can you see the visible church structure with Cain and Abel? Number one, they meet at the same place to worship the same God. They come to that same gate before the tree of life. They come to worship. I mean, Cain wasn't worshiping Buddha. He wasn't worshiping some Hindu God. He was worshiping the same God of heaven that Abel was worshiping. If you were looking uh, from a hill through binoculars and saw these two brothers coming, you would say, these two brothers belong to the same church, the same denomination, the same faith. I mean, they didn't have a name. Um, In fact, that's the only thing that it, it didn't have, their church. There was no church name. But you have the same location, that people are meeting together to worship God in a prescribed manner. With Cain and Abel, God's church wasn't simply what was visible. The story of Cain and Abel shows that God's church is invisible as well. God's true church wasn't just those who gathered at the garden gate. It wasn't just those who brought an offering God's true church was made up of those who were following God with their whole heart. Patriarchs and Prophets says Cain and Abel represent two classes that will exist in the world till what? The close of time. They represent two classes who will be part of this world till the close of time. In Christian service, it says it is a solemn statement that I make to the church that not one in who? Twenty, whose names are registered upon the church books. Church books being visible or invisible. That's the visible church. Not one in twenty who are part of the visible church are prepared to close their earthly history and would be as verily without God and without hope in this world as the common sinner. Being part of the visible church is not all we need to be part of, right? It's important. But according to Scripture and according to Spirit of Prophecy, it is equally important to be part of the invisible church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, says that there will be a group of people at the end of time who will have a form of what? Godliness. What does that mean? That means these are church folk. These are people who show up in their Sunday or Sabbath best. They go to church because their granddaddy went to church and their great-granddaddy went to church and their great-great-granddaddy went to church and they've always been going to church, so they show up to church. 
but they're only part of one church. They're only part of the visible church. They're not part of the invisible church. They have a form of godliness, but they deny all its power. Jesus talked about these, the visible and invisible, in this way. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, that's the visible, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness, that's the invisible. Was it important for Cain to show up to the right place, the garden gate? Yes. Was it important for Cain to bring an offering to worship? Yes. But was the visible outward religion the only thing that mattered? No. Patriarchs and Prophets says that Abel chose faith and obedience, Cain, unbelief and rebellion. Here the whole matter rested. It's not just what you do on the outside. It's what you, it's your heart condition on the inside. Are you in rebellion against God? Or does your heart follow him with faith? In, uh, Jesus laid it out clear to us. In John chapter 14, verse 15, he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. You know, keeping God's commandments, uh, and Scripture says this, is not burdensome. Keeping God's commandments is really a test of character. Those who love God will show it in the way that they conduct their life. Man, if I love God, I'm going to respect my marriage. If I love God, I'm going to respect human life. If I love God, I'm going to respect His name. If I love God, I'm going to respect His day. If I love God, I'm going to show these things uh, out of respect to Him. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to covet. Why am I not going to do these things? Because the grace of Christ has transformed me. Hebrews chapter 10 says, This is the new covenant, that I write my laws in their minds and write them on the tablets of their hearts. What is the new covenant for grace-keeping Christians? The new covenant is that God's law now becomes such an intricate part of our life that we live out God's law in our daily life, day by day. Uh, Not by words, but by grace does this happen in a person's life. Jesus reveals that when it comes to his church, it's not an either-or, it's not either visible or invisible. With Jesus, both the visible acts of true religion as well as the invisible motives of a true heart are important. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and cumin and anise. That's all visible, right? You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. That's invisible. These you ought to have done, that's the visible, without leaving the others undone, that's the invisible. What ends up happening to Cain 
is that because his focus was just on external religion and not on the invisible religion of the heart, he ends up killing his brother and eventually leaves the garden gate and never returns. In essence, the one who was a Christian, the one who was a follower of God in name only, eventually left the church. It was only those who were Christians or who were followers of God, not only in name, but in heart, who actually stayed in the church. Genesis 4.16 tells us that Cain left the church when it says that Cain went out from what? from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden, and he never came back. Now, I would submit to you that the same thing will happen to those who are Christians in name only at the end of time. If we are not spiritual Israel, like Cain, we also will be shaken out of the visible church when the shaking comes to God's church and will become the most bitter enemies of true Christians if today we are Christians in name only. It's not enough to have your name on the rolls of the church. It's not enough to come and sit in the pews of the church. Are you a Christian at home? Do you stand for the Lord at your work, at your job? Does your walk with God pervade your entire existence? Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 400, it says, Those who have had great light and precious privileges, but have not improved them, will, under one pretext or another, go out from us. Thankfully, God gave Adam and Eve another son. Because for a time, there was just Cain. God raised up another son of Adam, who began to worship with his father once more at the garden gate. His name was Seth. In Genesis 4, 25 to 26, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Notice what it says at the very end of that text. It says, Then men, what? Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Now, it's not that men hadn't been calling on the name of the Lord before then. After all, Abel existed before then, and he called on the name of the Lord. But after Seth, people began a, a renewed zeal for the worship of God um, began to sweep through the family of Adam. Patriarchs and Prophets says that the faithful had worshipped God before, but as men increased, the distinction between the two classes became more marked. There was an open profession of loyalty to God on the part of the one, and there was a of contempt and disobedience on the part of the other. As the Bible indicates that Cain and all his descendants dwelt together in cities which they built. 
In Genesis 4, 17, it says that Cain knew his wife, conceived and bore Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. So all of Cain's descendants dwelt together in the cities of the plain. What about the descendants of Seth? Where do they dwell? Patriarchs and Prophets, page 81, tells us that the descendants of Seth dwelt in the mountains. And they began to worship in the mountains so that they could escape from the contaminating influence of the descendants of Cain. So once again, you have a visible divide, just like you had at the altar of Cain and Abel. You have the visible church of God up in the mountains, and you have the visible church of Satan down in the cities. So here's what the true church, the true visible church of Scripture would look like at this time. The true church was of the lineage of Seth. They settled in the mountains together, and they maintained a pure worship of God. Now, they didn't have a name like the Waldensians or the Huguenots. Perhaps we could call them the Sethites. But they did worship God together as a visible church in the mountains. In other words, in order to be part of God's true church at that time, you had to move from the group in the valley to go to the group in the mountains. It was visible, not just spiritual. Do you see that? It was a visible church, but the visible church in the mountain compromised. We come to Genesis 6, verse 2, and it says, The sons of God, who are the sons of God? Those are the ones in the mountains. The sons of God saw the daughters of men. Who were they? Those were Cain's descendants in the valleys. Uh, now, some, would, some have said, well, the sons of God are angels, and the daughters of men are, are people, and, and somehow there was an amalgamation between angels and people. The Bible doesn't say that the sons of God were uh, angels. The sons of God were those who worshipped and followed the true God uh, of Adam. Those were the sons of God. In fact, the Bible tells us, as many as received him, this is John 1 verse 12, as many as received him, to them gave he the right to be called the children of God, even to them that believe on his name. So if you want to be a child of God or a son of God, you place your trust and faith in, uh, in God. Acts of the Apostles. Before we re read that, even though God's true church became a compromising church, it was still used by God as the channel through which he communicated and worked. God didn't give up on his church simply because his church became a compromising church. How do we know this? Because God went to the true church to find Noah. Noah was of the lineage of Seth. Noah worshipped according to, um, to the faith of his fathers. Acts of the Apostles, page 12, says, During the ages of spiritual darkness, the church of God has been as a city set on a hill. From age to age, through successive generations, the pure doctrine of heaven has been unfolding within its borders. Enfeebled, 
and defective as it may appear, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. This is the visible or invisible church? This is the visible church. The visible church, as enfeebled and defective as it may appear, is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. It is the theater of his grace in which he delights to reveal his power to transform hearts. As defective as the church became at the time of Noah, God did not give up on his visible church. It was from the mountain church of Seth that God found Noah. Genesis chapter 5, verse 28 through 29, you have the lineage of Seth. And who's right there at the bottom of the lineage of Seth? Noah. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son, and he called his, his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord had cursed. Genesis 5 describes the lineage of Seth. Notice what it says about Noah uh, when God comes to Noah in Genesis 6, verse 18. What does God say uh, with Noah, about Noah? I will establish my what? My covenant with what? With you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now, wait a minute. I thought God established his covenant with Abraham. I thought God established his covenant with Israel. You're telling me God established his covenant all the way back with Noah? Yes. Now, what is this covenant that God is establishing with Noah? Well, a covenant is an agreement between two people. Noah's end of the bargain was to remain a true and devoted follower of Yahweh, just as his great-granddaddy Seth was. God's end of the covenant was to preserve the family of Noah as God's visible church. Now, we know that Noah's family is the visible church because there is a visible separation. Noah's family goes into the ark. Everyone else is left behind. And they perish. The Bible even says that Noah was a preacher. And what church is complete without a preacher? So you have 2 Peter 2, verse 5, that says, Noah, one of eight people, a what? A preacher of righteousness. Noah was a preacher. The Bible says that Noah and his family performed the sacrifices just as the visible church before them did. Just as Adam did, just as Abel did, just as Seth and his descendants did, so Noah did. In Genesis 8, verse 20, it says that Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, was the church at this time perfect? No, the visible church was not perfect. Was it a faultless church because it was God's visible church at that time? Absolutely not. The Bible says that the preacher of this church actually got drunk and lay naked in his tent. Genesis 9, verse 20 through 21. Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. Then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. 
What would you do if your preacher ended up in this situation? I'm just wondering. <laughs> Did God abandon his true church because, because Noah fell? No, it was still God's true church at that time. I want you to notice a statement in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. It says, if we are what? Faithless, he remains what? Faithful. He cannot deny himself. The Bible tells us that God made a covenant with Noah. Noah's end of the bargain was to remain faithful and true to the God of, of, uh, of Adam. God and God's end of the bargain was to establish Noah's family as the visible church. Did Noah break his end of the bargain? Did God renege on his end of the bargain? No. The same God who made a covenant with Noah remained faithful to hold up his end of the bargain. We also find that Noah's youngest son walks walks in on Noah, and instead of covering him up, he goes and jokes about what he's seeing to his, um, about seeing his father's nudity to his brothers. All this revealing that the youngest boy, whose name was Ham, although a member of the visible church, may not have been a member of the spiritual church, the invisible one. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 22, it says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 117, it says, The unnatural crime of Ham declared that filial reverence had long before been cast from his soul, and it revealed the impiety and vileness of his character. These evil characteristics were perpetuated in Canaan and his posterity, whose continued guilt called upon them the judgments of God. Where did the Canaanites come from? They came from Ham. And Ham was at one point one of God's, uh, a member of God's true church. But did Ham stay a member of God's true church? No. Just like Cain, if we are members of God's church in name only, we will eventually leave the church of God. And Ham left the church of God just as Cain did. Now, remember, God's covenant with Abraham, um, with Noah, was that his whole family would come into the ark. The family of Noah represented the visible church, but not everyone in the ark was a true follower of God. The wheat and the tares were together in that one boat. You have uh, Noah, you have Shem, you have Japheth, and then you have the youngest, the rascal, who is Ham. Not all of them were, um, were faithful. Now, someone may say, but shouldn't God have destroyed Ham and not let him into the boat? Jesus answered this question of ours in a parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. I'd like to invite you to turn there with me. I don't have it up on the screen. 
Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Notice that it says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. One field, but two crops. One church, two very different groups of people. One field representing the visible church of God. This one field represents all of those who proclaim by name that they are worshipers of the true God, Yahweh. They say, we are worshipers. We, we, we worship God. We're faithful worshipers of God. But in reality, some of those who proclaim that they're faithful worshipers of God are really tares. Visible church and an invisible church. In the Middle East, the wheat and the tares, when first growing together, looked exactly the same. They both had green heads on long stalks. You can't really tell the difference until the time of the harvest. As the grain begins to mature and ripen, it turns from green to a golden color, while the tares turn from a green to a black color. Then and only then can you tell the difference between the wheat and the tares. You see, if we began separating now, you might separate the wrong person from the true church of God. You might pull up the wrong person and cast them aside as if they were tares, when in reality God saw had you let them ripen and mature, they would have shown forth as wheat. And so God says, you are not to make a division between the wheat and the tares at this time. Both are to grow together in the church of God until the harvest. And at the harvest, God himself will distinguish who is the wheat and who is the tares. Notice Ellen White's comment on this section. It's a long comment from Christ Object Lessons, page 71. But it's important. She says, By bringing into the church those who bear Christ's name while they deny his character, the wicked, wicked one causes that God uh, shall be dishonored, the work of salvation misrepresented, and souls imperiled. Christ's servants are grieved as they see true and false believers mingled in the church. 
They long to do something to cleanse the church. Is this the invisible or the visible church? This is the visible church. And the reason we know it's the visible church is because it has both true and false followers in the church. One visible church. They long to do something to cleanse the church. Have you ever longed to cleanse the church? Yeah. Like the servants of the householder, they are ready to uproot the tares. Have you ever felt like uprooting tares? But Christ says to them, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, ye uproot also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. Christ has plainly taught that those who persist in open sin must be separated from the church, but he has not committed to us the work of judging character and motive. He knows our nature too well to entrust this work to us. Oh, the Lord does, doesn't he? <laughs> we can all admit together that we misjudge one another, don't we? We are so quick to point our fingers at each other and say, I am sure that person uh, shouldn't be here. I mean, should we try to uproot from the church those whom we suppose to be spurious Christians, we should be sure to make mistakes. Often we regard as hopeless subjects the very ones whom Christ is drawing to himself. Were we to deal with these souls according to our imperfect judgment, it would perhaps extinguish their last hope. Many who think themselves Christians will at last be found wanting. Many will be in heaven who their neighbors supposed would never enter there. Man judges from appearance, but God judges the heart. The tares and the wheat are to grow together until the harvest. And the harvest is the end of the probationary time. According to Scripture and Ellen White, is there a visible church? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Are all the members of the visible church true followers of God? Yes or no? No. So why does God allow people in his visible church who are Christians in name only? Before I continue, I just want to comment on this in a pastoral way. In the Oregon Conference, and really in many conferences, there are some who look at the church, and because of all the wrong they see happening in the church, they say to themselves, I can't be part of this church I'm going to go to an independent church. Amen. And the view that motivates this is that the true church of God is the invisible church. So let's get all the invisibles together and then we'll have a really good church. The problem is, is that as soon as people start showing up, the church is messed up already. 
And you find that the independent church ends up having just as many, if not more, or different problems than the uh, denominational church. So why did you leave the denominational church to go to the independent church when you could have just stayed in the denominational church and been a witness there? I mean, there's problems in both churches. You cannot find a perfect, sinless church. Why? Because the Bible says so. The wheat and the tares are going to grow together. I mean, the only way that you can find a church that fits everything that you want a church to be is if it's just a church with you. If no one else can join your church, then you'll have the church you want. Right? But if you don't want a church of one, then it is important that we choose to allow what Christ says will happen, and that is that there's going to be tares and wheat that grow up in the church together. We live with it. It is a fact. And you know another thing, the the presence of the tares strengthens the root of the wheat. The presence of tares is necessary in the church because the presence of difficult individuals in the church uh, rub up against us and cause us to fall on our knees and cry out to the Lord. We cannot see the hearts of people. Just as Cain and Abel from outward appearances are, look the same in their worship, just as Ham for a time looked the same as Shem and Japheth in the ark, so also today we cannot tell who is the true worshiper of God. Their title to heaven is invisible, but a day will come when those who are Christians in name only will separate from the true worshipers. Just as Cain left the garden gate, just as Ham eventually left the true worshipers on the mountain where the boat had settled, so also will Christians uh, who went through the motions but never allowed Christ into their hearts. The time of shaking will find professed Christians unprepared for the trials that hit God's church. And what do they do? They leave. They join another church. They start an independent church. God's true followers do not leave the visible church at the end of time. God's true followers stay with the ship until it's docked at its destination. Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 380. The church may appear as about to what? Fall, but it does not. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out. The chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless, it must take place. Great Controversy, page 608. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message but have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth, abandon their position and join the ranks of opposition. Okay, pastor, you've shown us spirit of prophecy, but that's not in the Bible, is it? 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Little children, it is the what? How many of you believe we're living in the last hour? And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. How many of you believe the Antichrist is coming? And he says, is already here. 
Even now many antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Let me rephrase that into the language of this sermon. The professed Christians left the visible denomination because they were not part of the invisible church. Do you see that? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Do you see that? But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. I want you to know, friends, that it is not God's will that you separate from the visible church. It's not God's will that you leave the Seventh-day Adventist church. Not His will that you separate and go to an independent church. That's not God's plan. God will use this church. This is the ship that will go through to the end. You and I can make a choice to be a part of that ship. To stay with the boat until it's docked at its end destination. This is God's church, and God has a true church. I would also say, friends, that it's not enough to simply be part of the visible church. Because if you're not part of the invisible church, if you're not part of God's remnant in heart, the Bible says you're going to leave. Where are you today? As you look at your own life, your own religion, would you say, yes, I'm part of the visible church, but you know it's kind of in name only? I come, I sit, I pray, I pay my tithes and offerings, but you know, between me and the Lord, when we have chats at night, I know deep down inside my heart that God really doesn't have my full heart this morning. Is that where you are, my friend? Today I want to invite you to plead in prayer before God that your name will be written in the books of heaven as part of the invisible church. Today, you need to make a stand. You need to make a decision. You need to be sure today that your name is written in God's book. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Today, if God is moving upon your heart and you say, you know, I've got my names in the book, but my heart isn't fully there yet. And I want my heart to be there because I want to be part of this church that goes through to the end. I want to invite you to make a commitment today in a substantial way. I could call you to bow your head. I could call you to raise your hand. I could call you to fill out a card. But you know, there's nothing that sets in your heart a decision like coming forward. It's 
There's, there's something about it that just getting up out of your seat and coming forward and making that commitment to the Lord, that really sets that commitment down deep inside your heart. And I'd like to invite you, if you want to make that commitment to be part of God's invisible church as well as part of God's visible church to take that stand and take this opportunity to walk forward for Christ. Lord, I want to be part of your invisible church. I, I don't want to be a Christian in name only. I want to make a full commitment this morning. The Father sees each one of us as we're coming forward to make this commitment to him. Before I close, earlier in the service, I made a call in the baptistry saying, perhaps God is calling you to be baptized or re-baptized to join the visible church of God through this way. Maybe you've been feeling that call for a long time. Maybe it's a call that you've just been feeling recently. And you feel like today you want to respond to that call and say, Lord, I not only want to be a part of your invisible church in my heart, but I want to take my stand. Because you took a visible stand for me on the cross, I want to take my stand. And I want to be publicly baptized indicating that I want to be part of your church, your visible church. Is there somebody here who would like to raise their hand to the Lord and say, I would like to prepare for baptism? I see your hand. Praise the Lord. Let's kneel together. Gracious Father, I thank you and praise your name that, that you have called each one of us as individuals the Bible says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And those who have come forward have been hearing you knocking. They're tired of playing church, tired of half-hearted religion. They want to give their entire hearts and lives to you. We want to give our entire hearts and lives to you, Father. And I pray that you would hear our sincere prayer now and come. Change our hearts and bring us into that church that is your invisible church made up of true followers who are 100% committed to following the Lamb wherever he goes. If it is possible, Lord, we ask to be part of the 144,000 who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Lord, seal this decision this morning through your Spirit. Through the agency of your Holy Spirit, take our commitment this morning and make it count in our life. We give you permission to do whatever is necessary to change us, transform us, and make us into your children. We ask this in Christ's name. And all God's people said,